Bit of a strange text, this one, isn't it? Uh, for a start, it's filled with all sorts of um, very a- uh, strange, ancient names. It's describing uh, a history, a heritage of different uh, families, different groups, and then ultimately great nations. Uh, I guess to some extent, you could say, well, why? why? Why do we even want to think about this? And let's just pause for a minute and reflect maybe a little bit on why we might want to think about this. A few months ago, we were up in Whitby, and uh, we walked up the steps up onto the top. We walked through the graveyard, and um, it just brought to mind what it, how interesting it is uh, to walk amongst the graves. And uh, in a sense, this chapter is a bit like that, isn't it? It's a walk amongst the graves. We can't literally walk amongst the graves of these men from thousands of years ago. Their uh, burial places have long time been lost. But at the same time, as we uh, walk amongst graves right now, we see family connections, don't we? We see uh, a, an older gravestone, which maybe was the grandfather or the father, and then we see uh, the daughter or the son or the mother. We see all of these connections. We see laid out before us as we walk around a place like that, as we walk around uh, graveyards, we see a constant reminder of the fragility and at the same time the continuity of human existence, don't we? It reminds us, or certainly from my point of view, it reminds me that actually, in a sense, we have a heritage, and in another sense, our time here is remarkably short, isn't it? Names that are up there, names which are, uh, at the moment, at this point in time, they're, they're kind of, they're set in stone, they're reminders, and yet, how quickly even within families, those individuals are forgotten. They're they're just names. But they are a constant reminder that we live in that, that continuous journey of the human experience, of being born, of living, of dying, of being part of this heritage. In a sense, that's what the narrator of chapter 25 at least partly is wanting to remind us. Here's this man, Isaac, that we've, we've been following, and he's connecting this man, Isaac, to the heritage that has gone before, to Abraham, and then it connects to the next generation of uh, Jacob and Esau. In this little single uh, chapter, we see three generations of connection. It's a reminder of our, our heritage, forgotten lives and yet lives remembered. I suppose to some extent as well, when we know some of those names, perhaps, maybe, you, maybe you've done this, maybe you've gone, traced your family tree, maybe, uh, and there's names which are fairly close by, for, relatively recent, that you, you know of, and you know a little bit about them. You might have known something of uh, some of the great things that they've done, perhaps, uh, we're a generation, many of us, who, who don't know what it is to be in a world war. Uh, and yet there will have been forefathers, foremothers, who have been deeply embedded in that experience. 
and we have memories of maybe influences that they bring. As we walk amongst the gravestones, at least one of the questions that it poses to us as we think and ponder, how am I going to shape my life? What are the influences that that are going to be important to me? What is significant in my life and my experience? In a sense, again, what we see laid out before us is the starting point. The narrator is still kind of setting the scene for what's going to come next. But two things are in operation. Firstly, there are the questions of human experience and individual decisions that will be made. That's one purpose that the narrator lays out this, um, this story for us, this particular aspect. But the second really important point is this. Another opportunity for us to be reminded again, introduced a little bit more to what God is like to who God is, the God as described in the Bible. You know, one of the great things about being in this particular location and being church in this place is that um, we have a great number of friends uh, just come along and for many of you, I guess, the, the idea of God and the Bible might not be um, that well known. That's great. I, one of the tasks that we see Uh, our job to do is to introduce the God of the Bible. And God is very concerned that we understand Him. We live in a, a world where there can be a multitude of different ideas of the concept of God. All sorts of different ideas. You know, the Bible is about the task of God, making sure that we know and we understand The God who is described there, the living God, the creator God, the one who makes himself known throughout the Old Testament in kind of distant ways, but continually more and more introducing what he is like and then ultimately revealing himself in Jesus so that we are ready for when Jesus reveals himself again to all of humanity. That is the story of the Bible. It wants to make sure, the message of God wants to make sure that we don't have some kind of nebulous, kind of spirity idea of God. That might be a view of God. I'm not saying that that isn't. But the God of the Bible is keen to introduce who he is. It's really important for us to understand. This is part of that job. So the first thing that we see is we see this man, Abraham, who had taken another wife, Keturah, and she bore this list of names that I'll not read. And, uh, and those various children had various children. And uh, it's, it makes it very clear the sons of Midian were Ephah and Ephah and, and, and all of the These are all descendants of Keturah. What we see very clearly is that from that particular wife, Abraham had three wives, Keturah, Hagar, and Sarah. There is a mass of people groups. 
When we look at the Middle East, when we look at the various groupings, we need to remind ourselves that all of those groupings point themselves back in different ways to Abraham, the founder of that plethora of people groups. Many of those people groups have lived, grown up, enlarged, and declined and disappeared. So there are names in the Bible that are no longer known, and yet there is this continuity of people groups. You know, one of the things that God makes sure that He uh, delivers on is the promises that He makes. Let's remind ourselves why Abraham is significant. Because God says to Abraham, I want you to leave the place where you have established your, uh, where your family is established. I want you to leave that place and I want you to move to this new place. I'm going to give you this land and your people will be a mass of people. Look up at the stars, he says, and look at all of the people, all of the stars. They're beyond number. It's a figurative device that God is using with Abraham. He's wanting him to see, this is way back in chapter 12 by the way, you won't find it in our reading. Uh, Way back in chapter 12, he's wanting to explain to Abraham and to make sure that Abraham knows this individual man who wanders off into the desert is going to be the father of many. And one of the purposes of the writer here, the narrator, is Keturah. Ishmael's sons, Jacob and Esau, all of these various people who are the immediate families of Abraham are massive people groups established in the world. Look at what it says in verse 8. This is kind of, it's almost as though the narrator is just rounding off the Abraham time. Abraham breathed his last, died at a good old age, an old man and full of years. And he was gathered to his people. His sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. It's not... It's kind of... Wow. It's been all about Abraham up to this point, and now Abraham is gone. He's buried with his wife, Sarah. But the message that the narrator is insistent that we understand is Abraham might be gone, but my work is carrying on. Look at all of these names that continue. The work carries on. Again, we see the narrator reinforcing in our thinking. It's not about Abraham. It's not about Isaac. It's not about Jacob. It's not about these individuals. They are the individuals who God has used, who God has placed his blessing on. These are the ones who are instrumental in God delivering into this world himself, making himself known. Abraham was surrounded, Isaac was surrounded, Jacob was surrounded by all sorts. 
sorts of religious ideas. Masses of different ideas. All the people groups that they'd been, they'd moved into this new land. They were surrounded with different ideas. Abraham was a tiny voice. He was a nothing. In fact, it looked as if the opportunity for his, uh, the promise that God made to Abraham, it looked as if that was about to fail because his wife didn't have a child. And yet God delivered. And God delivers on the promises. There's a particular blessing that is pretty clear to Isaac and Jacob. But you know, God made a promise to Hagar when she was out in the desert and her life looked as if it was ending and the life of her son looked as if it was ending. And God said, look, I'm going to deliver for you as well. There's going to be a mass of people that are going to come from Ishmael. And that is exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. Because that is what God is like. He's a God who delivers tangibly in this world. You know, one of the things that's really important for us to understand, maybe you're just um, coming to understand a little bit about the Bible. One of the things that God is insistent that we understand is that he, he does all sorts of things which are just temporary good. They're temporary good. They're not necessarily eternal good. They're temporary. Now, the fact that we are blessed with all sorts of good things where we currently are, the fact that, as we prayed earlier, we are not concerned in this land at this point in time in our history. In our history, we are not concerned about our daughters being taken, uh, kidnapped, and sold into slavery. That is a blessing that we experience at this moment in time. It's a good thing. God's the architect, the protector of that. You say, well, what about where it isn't like that? You know, one of the things that that says to me is actually, as we prayed earlier, look what human beings are capable of. Look what human beings are really capable of. It's terrifying what we can do to each other. And yet God protects and God delivers. It's a way of knowing what he is like. That God delivers on the promises that he made to Keturah, to Hagar, to Sarah, but ultimately to Abraham. Look up at the stars, Abraham. It's going to be a mass of people. And that's what we see delivered in this chapter. That's amazing. That's great, isn't it? Sounds good. In fact, we see what seems like a lovely family scene. Sad and yet somehow right. In verse 9, Isaac and Ishmael bury their father, Abraham, with his wife, Sarah. It looks great, doesn't it? <laughs> the problem is that 
isn't how it works out from generation to generation to generation. Later on, we read this. In verse uh, 17, Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died. He was gathered to his people. See the contrast or, or the kind of like the parallel? Abraham, Ishmael. What kept became of Ishmael's children and children's children? What became of that great nation? His descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt as you go toward Asher. And they lived in hostility toward all the tribes related to them. Isn't that a tragedy? Isn't that a tragedy? You see, and in a sense, I, I think the narrator is just writing with absolute genius here. Genius. It's what happened, and yet at the same time, he's putting a little marker down that says, this is what Ishmael's descendants were like. It was like this. It's a bit like this. We could, we could encapsulate it like this. They were the descendants of Ishmael, and ultimately they were descendants of Abraham. But their fact, the fact that they were descendants of Abraham was not something that they treasured. There wasn't that sense of, well, we see it. We've seen it already hinted at as we've been going through this journey the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the idea of Isaac and the servant that we saw last, last week having faith in the God of Abraham. There's nothing of that with the Ishmaelites. Nothing of that of the descendants of Ishmael. There's no sense of connectedness. There's no sense of saying we belong in some way to the heritage that believes in that God. We're disconnected from that. And we're hostile towards those who really should be our brothers and sisters. What a tragedy. And yet, isn't there a sense in which part of this is, it's a little cameo really, little picture, preparation really, for the total human condition. See, what was the cause of the strife? What was the cause of the hostility? They were hostile towards their relatives. But really, hostility comes from disconnectedness, doesn't it? When, when we're no longer connected, when we no longer have that common heritage, common oneness, common belonging, common belief. When I estrange myself from that common heritage and common belonging, then hostility is the natural outcome. One of the things that the Bible wants to explain to us is the reason that we exhibit and the reason that we experience hostility as human beings is because of our disconnectedness from our true heritage. That's worked out right the, before Abraham, actually. One of the things that the Bible explains to us is what our true heritage is. We are, in a sense, related 
in one sense, to the God who made us. That's our heritage. There are many reasons why we know that. There are many reasons why we know that to be, we get hints whether we know of that God, whether we believe in that God. There are things that come up in our lives that constantly remind us. The fact that we know certain things, the fact that we know that right from wrong, we have this innate sense of justice. We know what is right. We also have that contradiction that we can't actually do what is right, but we know what is right. In fact, we have that strange contradiction, don't we? Pretty much all of us. The things that we know are right, we can't do, but we get really upset and frustrated when others do them to us. The very things that we can't deliver ourselves. We have this inner contradiction. Where does that rightness come from? Where does that sense of love come from? Where does that sense of life come from? Where is that written into us desire to live? The Bible says that that is our heritage because we are connected. We are, in a sense, related to God. It it puts it like this at the beginning of Genesis. We are in His image. We carry, we are image bearers of God. That's an amazing privilege. It's a high status that human beings experience. But when we are estranged from that, we end up in hostility. There's double hostility. There's a hostility towards God and there is an inevitable hostility towards each other. I'm not talking about race, people groups here. I'm talking about human experience as people. We're just like the descendants of Ishmael. We're just in that kind of situation. We live with hostility towards those around us. We might not like to admit it, but we do. We cannot express what we know we ought to express. There is a sense in which this little section just makes a little comment about the Ishmaelites and yet at the same time it carries this massive message of the state of humanity. We live estranged from God. Isn't it interesting? Actually, if we go back, where did that problem come? It came between Esau and Ishmael, actually. There was tension between those two as they were growing up. Sorry, Isaac and Ishmael. There was tension between Isaac and Ishmael as they were growing up. And the the attitudes that exhibited in that tension carried on from generation to generation. Here's the thing, we are way more affected and influenced by our heritage past than we would ever realize, would we? We are shaped by the things that have gone before. The fact that our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents and our great-great-grandparents are unable to live as they ought to live, connected to God, means that I am going to continue to live that disconnectedness before God. 
in exactly the same way as Ishmael's descendants live in hostility. Hostility to the connected potential of the God of Abraham. I I guess for us today, understanding that that's our problem, is it a really important thing, isn't it? Why, Why am I like this? Because I'm estranged from God, ultimately. Why do I behave in ways that frustrate even me? Why do other people behave towards me in ways that are completely unjust at times? Because we are, as human beings, estranged from God. Third thing we see is this. The hope of God, God's absolute commitment to deliver in this world, is once again hanging by a thread. It's great the way the narrator writes this. Verse 21 says this, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Now, if we've got our kind of Old Testament antenna switched on, that connects us, doesn't it, with the past. Abraham had that problem. Now Isaac has that problem. In fact, one of the problems that Abraham caused himself was in the face of that, in the face of the promise of God, he tried to solve it himself. He made all sorts of mistakes in his commitment to try to solve the problem. And yet, we see it again. Here's Isaac. This is not primarily about the real emotional challenge of childlessness. It's, it, that is the human experience. But it is not primarily, this is not a commentary on being unable to have children. That's the mechanism by which the story continues. But the primary issue is this. How is God going to deliver salvation into this world? How is God going to make sure that he delivers on his promises? Abraham, your son Isaac, or your son, who you don't even have yet, is going to be the hope of the nations. I don't even have him. I'm too old to have him. Well, you're going to have a child and we'll laugh about it. And that's exactly what happens. Because God is wanting to stamp, I am the deliverer of this. Look at what happens. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. It's nowhere near as developed a storyline as it is for Abraham. But it's the same issue. And the Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. God was always going to do that. He was always going to do that. Isaac expressed his faith in God. But God was always going to deliver a child to Isaac and Rebekah. He was always going to. Because that's what he had promised to do. Do you see that in our lives? Is that an important lesson for us to learn? 
Is that essential for us to learn? There are things in life which God has said, I will deliver. I'm going to keep a hold of you. You're not going to fall irretrievably. If you're mine, you're mine. I'm going to keep hold of you. Do you feel as if, do you feel as if that's a really hard thing to believe at times? If you're a believer in Jesus, in, in, in all of the challenges of living in the 21st century secular world, our own personal experiences and, and rebellion, do we look at that and think, I'm not sure whether God is going to deliver this? Isaac is a great example for us in exactly that. Is God going to deliver it? Yeah, absolutely God is going to deliver it because he said, that's what I will deliver. He's the kind of God who makes a promise and delivers against that promise. But at the same time, Isaac is an example for us to say, how do I express my dependence on God by praying that God will deliver me in the way that he said he would? In other words, uh, I think John Piper puts this really helpfully. He says, I get up every morning and I say, God, Father, please keep a hold of me today because I am unable to keep a hold of you. I think that is refreshing to hear a pastor with years and years of experience, great Bible knowledge, down at the grassroots saying in human terms, I don't think I can keep being a Christian today. I find that helpful, to be honest. Because I wake up and feel as if I can't do it today. Maybe your experience of the idea of Christian faith is this. I don't think if I commit myself to Jesus, if I commit myself to that kind of hope in Him, I just don't think I could keep it going. I know, because I feel like that. I don't think I can keep it going. But Isaac is an example to us. God said he's going to keep us, but I'm going to pray that he will, because I'm dependent on him. One of the ways I express that dependence is by saying, Father, will you just keep me today? Keep me today. Hold on to me just today. And then tomorrow, just hold on to me today. And then the next day, just hold on to me today. Is God going to do it? Well, he's the kind of God that can deliver a plan of salvation against all human odds. He can certainly keep hold of you and me. That's what this narrator is wanting us to see. It's hanging by a thread. And yet God delivers The story of the two, the two babies being born is just, it's like, okay, get ready for the next installment. Here's the, in fact, this is almost like a, a turning point, really. These next, these next two sections, this week and next week, uh, Isaac almost disappears, pretty much. Isaac is our move from Abraham to Jacob. He's faithful, but he's just got a part, a short part. And his part is this. He prays to God that God will give his childless wife a child, and she does that. He does that, and she has two children, two boys. 
Jacob and Esau, or Esau and Jacob, because Esau is born first. Two competing brothers. Never happens, does it? (laughs) No, no. There's always harmony between brothers, isn't there? Yeah, of course there is. You see it right, almost kind of cameoed right from the very beginning. This little story of the birth. Jacob has got hold of Esau's heel as Esau is born. This little picture of preparing us for what comes next. What comes next is absolutely essential to the rest of the story. What did we say about the Ishmaelites? They despised the God of Abraham. They, 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 they lived that despising out by their disconnectedness from their heritage. They had no concern. They grew up, these two young men. One was a great hunter. Have you been watching the island? Some of you might have been watching the island. Um, Gang of blokes out on an island surviving in the middle of, uh, I guess it's probably Pacific or Indian Ocean or something like that. Surviving on, well, they've got, you know, a few knives, machetes, and they've got to survive. I'm looking at it thinking I would love to do that. That would just be brilliant. I don't think I'll get the chance. Uh, But it would be brilliant, fantastic, to survive on this island. Esau's that kind of guy. He's a hunter. He goes, he's, he's kind of, you know, he's the kind of guy that when he was a young kid, he'd have been building bows and arrows, and he'd have been learning to shoot. Jacob was not that kind of guy. He was the home guy. Uh, he's the kind of guy that was far more happy just to stay where he is, to be in the community. Esau was just out there. We got to this point where Esau... He's out hunting, and uh, Esau comes back, wanders in, uh, and he uses this, this picture, really, and that's what it is of, of where he is. I've come back from hunting, and I'm about to die from hunger. Verse 29 says, uh, Jacob was cooking some stew, and Esau came in from the open country, famished. Quick, let me have some of that red stew I'm famished. It's a little bit of a play on words that the narrator is using because he's been described previously as being covered in red hair and now it's red stew. It's a little bit of a play that the narrator is just keeping our interest. Red is kind of, you know, playing a part here. Comes in, I'm famished. We're going to kind of work through a little bit of the character of Jacob over these next few weeks. But Jacob says, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? Now, first reading, the first reading, as we kind of just pick that up and read the words as is, we might be tempted to think that Jacob has just been the most obnoxious, horrible, 
disgraceful person in his behavior. This guy is dying of hunger and he won't give his brother some food. Just stop. Just pause for a minute. Have you ever been out for a full day of really hard work and you come home and you are absolutely starving hungry? And you use that kind of language, I'm just starving. Well, am I starving? (laughs) Am I starving? Am I unable to move through hunger? Am I dependent on somebody being there to lift food to my lips because I am starving? Or am I using a figure of speech which says, do you know what, I'm absolutely done in, I want to crash on the settee and I want somebody to bring me some food because I'm just starving. Will you do that for me? And there is the moment that answers this challenge, doesn't it? Because what we see in Esau is exactly the same attitude as we see in the descendants of Ishmael. I don't care about my heritage. And Jacob knew that that was the heart. I I know that my brother does not care about the heritage of my father Isaac and the heritage of my father's father, Abraham. I know that he does not have that care. He does not have that connectedness. He does not share the love of that God. Sell me your birthright. What good's a birthright when I'm starving? Of course you can have it. Have the birthright. I'm not bothered. Just give me some food. The writer of the Hebrews looks at that behavior, looks at that kind of attitude and describes it in the most developed, expanded way. He says this, see that no one is sexually immoral, talking to the church. From God's perspective, sexual immorality is a real, it's a big deal. It's something to be concerned about. We must not live sexually immoral lives. We thank God for the cross, which is the resolver of our sexual immorality. We love the fact that the cross resolves our issues of sexual immorality. And at the same time, we are to live lives which are not sexually immoral. And then it says this, or neither sexual immorality or godlessness. It's One is an expression of the latter. Don't live godless lives. What does godlessness look like? It it looks like living in this world disconnected from the God who made us. How is godlessness described? Like Esau. Like Esau. Who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. There's the thing. The issue is not the meal. The issue is not the fact that he's coming hungry. The issue is he is disconnected from the God of his father and his forefather, Abraham. That is a big deal. That is a huge deal. It's a massive deal. He despised it 
He didn't care about it. In other words, that moment in time revealed his true heart. A moment where he was hungry revealed what he was really like. I don't care about the God of my father. (laughs) Whether he'd have known the story, I don't know, probably, by this stage in life. You know that kind of story that says, yeah, you know your mum, your mum couldn't have children. And um, I knew that God had promised that I was going to be the hope. I prayed that God would give us children, and he answered that. You're You're the result of that. Yeah, I don't care. I don't care. That's the issue for Esau. He is disconnected from the God of his father and his his grandfather. You know, the great news is that even though we've already said that we are disconnected from the God of our father and our grandfather, in other words, the God of our ultimate heritage, what God is doing throughout all of this is delivering salvation into the world. That is our hope. Because from this family line, ultimately, comes Jesus. Because Jesus is the ultimate promise. Isaac, Jacob, they're means to an end. They're the process by which God says, this is what I'm like and I promise I'll deliver salvation into this world. The issue is this, as we close. Are we going to take up the opportunity to understand more of that Jesus so that we have the opportunity to see him as our saviour and reconcile the disconnectedness with which we currently live? And if we already trust in him, are we going to live our lives understanding what it really means to be connected? I'm going to give you just a final kind of idea of where we're headed. This is about growing up. As we trace the life of Jacob, it's about growing up. And ultimately, for all of us, that's the issue. Are we going to grow up knowing God? So that when we have our descendants walking round the graveyard and seeing names, are we going to be the people who will be remembered that we grew up knowing God? We start off as kids. No matter when you come to Jesus, we start off as kids. But the issue is we've got to grow up. And that's what this journey is about. Let's see next week what happens now that he's given him a bowl of stew.